Yeah. All right, Boker Tov, everyone, good morning. All right, here we go. Today's topic is the art of surrender. Now, I know what you're thinking. The art of surrender, who said surrender is an art? I literally said it's the art of surrender. So if you need a source, it's going to be me. Look, the, 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 the series that we're doing, I've titled Spiritual Surrender. So you can tell that surrender is a major theme of the conversation. And I think the word surrender gets a bad rap. First of all, we're not talking about surrender in times of war, etc. We're talking about personal surrender, right? Personal surrender, um, which sometimes is tied in with um, acceptance. I sent out an email. I hope everyone's getting the emails. If not, let me know after the class. I'll make sure to get you on the email list. Um, you know, I wrote in the email about the serenity prayer, the idea of accepting, right, things that are out of control. Um, which is a powerful concept. I spoke about, in the email I wrote about, the idea of you know, stages of you know, grief, responding to grief and loss, and how the final stage, although it's not necessarily sequential, but one of the stages, and what's known as stage five, in the five stages of grief, is the idea of, again, acceptance. And I think when we speak about acceptance and surrender, it could get a bad rap, but I think it is extremely important. I mean, um, I always, when, whenever thinking about this topic, I go back to a lecture that I once heard from Shimona Tsikernik. Have you Are you guys familiar with that name, Shimona? And I may have even mentioned it recently at a class. I don't know if I did, but if not, or even if I did, I'm going to mention it again. So Shimona is a, she teaches a lot of Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy and she's a, she's a personal coach, a life coach, and a spiritual mentor to many. Um, she also happens to be, how are we related? I don't even know how this is gonna work. Her, here's, I'll just say, her son married my wife, Leah's sister. Does that make sense? Right? So my brother-in-law is her son. There you go. And, and here's the thing. Shimona became, kind of got into Chabad through my father-in-law, through Leah's dad. He, would teach, he was teaching a Tanya class every week. And she came to the Tanya class one week. And she was so offended by what she heard, she stormed out. By the way, this is not a joke. I, I was joking before, Toba. She got so offended. I don't know what. I don't know if she got offended or she was like, uh, she stormed out. Then she came back the next week. And now she teaches Tanya. <laughs> she is, uh, but anyway, so here's a crazy story. Here's a crazy story. It's not, it's not crazy. That's the wrong term. Here's a, um, a very, I don't know, sad story. So she was, so listen to this story. So she was engaged to be married. And she was like, she, she, she tells a story. She, she tells that she was so happy and so looking Hey, Brian, she was so looking forward to, um, uh, to this wedding, to getting married. They had an apartment. Well, I mean, they had you know, rented an apartment, and they had furnished it and whatever. And it was like two weeks from the wedding, two weeks away from the wedding. And her husband was traveling. Maybe he was from Europe, or he was traveling in Europe. I don't know the details. He got... Wasn't her husband, yeah. Sorry, right, true. Her fiancé, thank you, right. Her fiancé was in Europe. And he gets into a major car accident and dies. And she, she tells a story. She, 
she's been here a few times. She's been here a few times. Um, Shimona. Yeah, S-H-I-M-O-N-A, Shimona. Anyway, so she, so she tells how she was obviously devastated and heartbroken, but more than that, she felt, she felt at that point in her life, she felt that her life was basically over. That's how she felt. That she had these plans, she had, you know, her husband lined up, she had her life lined up, and now it's over. She literally felt like her life was over, and she could not get out of bed. She couldn't, she couldn't move. And she, she, um, she spoke to, I think in that state, I, I don't think she initially wanted to speak to anybody, but eventually she was speaking to people to try to get some, you know, some insight and whatever, guidance. And essentially what she heard and what she came to, and she, again, I, I'm not speaking for her, I'm, I'm just repeating the words that I've literally personally heard her tell me, is that she... In her mind and in her heart, she gained clarity on the distinction between pain and suffering. This is something that I think many of us are familiar with. We've heard this before, but it's one thing to hear it as an idea. It's another thing to go through it as an experience in life. And those are two totally different realities. And she came to the, not only realization, but to the recognition in her mind and heart and entire being that the pain is objective, but the suffering is subjective. The pain is what happened, but the suffering is, and, and this, these again are her words, suffering is born of holding on to a notion that is not the reality that is in front of you. In other words, as long as you're holding on to the notion of what should have been, right, but will never be, there will always be suffering. Because there's a gap in this story, certainly between the reality and what she had dreamed of or what she had expected or, and, and what she wanted. And as long as she's still stuck in that narrative of what should have been, what could have been, what was destined to be and what you know, is not fair that it's not, as long as she's still holding on to that, she's still suffering. She came to that realization. Now, does that magically make that narrative go away? Of course not. But it gave her perspective. You know what perspective is? You know, you have one eye, there's no perspective. Two eyes, now you have stereo vision, now you have perspective. Perspective is the idea of depth. Now, it doesn't mean you're magically seeing something new that you didn't see before. You saw the same thing before, as before. The difference is now you can place it. Now you can rank it. Now you can prioritize it. What is, right? What is perspective? Perspective means I can see what is close and what's far. What's important and what's not so important. And so this realization gave her a powerful perspective to recognize that although the pain is not going away, although the pain to some extent may never go away, the suffering was something that she could work on internally she could move into the space, and again, her words, of honesty, because the truest thing you can say is that my reality is the reality in front of me. That's the truest thing that you can say. The truest thing that any person can say is, this is reality. Doesn't mean we should never aspire to something greater than our reality. Of course we should. But in this situation, 
right? Having wanted, dreamed of, planned, you know, about to, you know, to, to live a certain life and, and be that, be in that reality and have that horrifically and tragically taken away from you. Again, to her, it, 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 we're speaking of one person's experience, to her, that, uh, um, uh, her healing began when she told herself, this is the reality. This is what happened. She's, I mean, she's Orthodox, right? So she was probably getting married in her 20s. I don't know if she was always. Number one, I don't know how old she was. I don't know. You know what I mean? That's also a perspective that she Correct. probably was learning too. Like, it's not my life is <coughs> Correct. Another stage. Correct. That itself is a, right. But that's something that you have to find yourself. Right. People can tell you things. But that's different than you accepting it. And that acceptance, again, I'm, and the, there may be nuanced differences between them, but roughly, I am kind of uh, uh, joining and combining the notion of acceptance with the idea of surrender. Surrender in the sense of, I am going to let go. Let go of my notion, my plan, my script, because clearly my script is not the script. So I can hold on to my script, and that's great, but I may just be torturing myself. If I hold on to the script, then I can accept it, with open and clear eyes, and then make take the next step from here. Yeah. Okay, but you said also that the pain never goes away. Correct. So how do you define the pain then? The, the suffering is... I, I hear you, I hear you. Go. I think the pain is the loss. I don't think the loss ever goes away. But that seems like then you're not giving, it, giving up your suffering. I hear what you're saying. So I hear what you're saying. I don't see the difference then. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. In my head, in my head and in my personal experience, I can differentiate. I, I, I feel that, I feel personally that differentiation, but I can't, I know, I know for sure that I can't speak for anyone else and anyone else's experience. And I understand your question, and I don't know that I have a good answer to it. I don't know that I have a good response to your question. So again, Toba's question is, one second, if you're saying that, well, the suffering can be mitigated with a different perspective, but the pain can't, well, then why not? I mean, what's, what is the pain if not also the, the, the loss, or what is the loss if not the loss of expectation? And isn't that the same thing as you said about suffering? I understand that question, and I don't have a really good response, but I do think that there's, there's something like, um, you know, for a child, it is a little bit warm in here, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know what we're gonna do. <laughs> the only thing is the window, but we're not touching that. Um, the, the only thing I can, and this is going to be a crude example, and, and I don't even know if this is a good example. It just literally came into my head, so I haven't processed it yet. But a child, oh, I can really, uh, you know, I'll tell you my own, my, own, uh, my own story. Not my own story, it's like the whole story. One piece of my childhood. There was one year in which I joined the Little League team. Little League Baseball. We had always played sports. You know, the yeshiva, the yeshiva that I went to, it was a small yeshiva. Relatively small. I mean, we used to play football in a little back alley somewhere. We had no organized sports. Like, it wasn't like one year there was a movement to get organized and to have a little league team in a little league league with jerseys and cleats. And I was so excited. And I geared up 
you know, because you buy the cleats. And you buy the socks that, I don't know if they still do that, the socks that go up, right? You, and the pants that don't go all the way down? The leg, right? They go, the, it's like... Or maybe that's what it was. Who knows? Well, you'll see why I, I don't know soon. <laughs> Uh-oh. Foresh- foreshadowing the story. Anyway, so it, I was looking forward to it. I picked my number. I picked the number 17. I wanted 18, but someone else had it. <laughs> no, it was an all-Jewish team. But like, all-Jewish kids. So someone else got 18 first. So I'm like, okay, 17. Why 17? Hey, this is my little kid head. No, because 17 is the numerology of the word tov, which is good. So I figured 17. There you go. Did you, did, did you say that? Oh, that, what, 17? That's tov. I mean, that's good. <laughs> anyway, so here we go. So, and it was great. And tryouts or practice, I don't think we had a tryout. To get, we had to think everyone was on the team that wanted to be on the team. So, but, but the practice went great. And I was going to be like the third baseman. I was so excited. And then, I don't know, I can't remember what happened. I mean, like what caused it, but here's what happened. I ended up, I, get, I think it was in the context of, of, the, of either the practice or, or maybe not. I ended up breaking my finger, arm, something. Clearly, I've blocked this out, right? I broke something and I was out for the season. So here's the thing. So to me, wow, this is like a long story. I probably never have shared the story in my life. But here's, the, here's my, and this is going to be very reductionist, and I, I, I even hesitate now kind of finishing off my point. But I think to me, in my very, I must have been, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, who knows what I was processing then. I think the pain would be the actual pain from the injury and the actual recovery time of that injury and dealing with the pragmatics of having an arm and a cast or a finger and a cast and not being able to utilize that. I think the suffering would be the loss of expectation and the dashing of the dreams of being on that team and being the star third baseman, obviously, star, not just the third baseman, but the star third baseman on that championship winning Yeshiva Little League team. In Pittsburgh, right, in Pittsburgh, in Squirrel Hill. Right, exactly, right. So here's the thing. I know that's not, that's not necessarily a sufficient answer. But that's the way I see it. Sorry, it's the way I, I feel it and process it, is that the pain is as objective as a definition as one can, can have in whatever that experience is, whereas the suffering is, is, is not the objective pain, but rather what, the, the narrative that we hold on. And again, as Shimona puts it, it's really the gap. It's really the gap, the dissonance between where we are and where we believe and where we believe we should have been or should be and that, and holding on to that while being here just creates just creates um, it stretches us in ways that is torturous and i say that because i think we know this truth to whatever extent we have had these experiences and or can practice it the idea of surrender can be healthy however surrender gets a bad rap why do i say that because we live in a world, we live in a time when it's all about self-affirmation, right? It's all about self-care and self-affirmation. And what do I need? And I'm not, you know, and, and we think about those that dedicate or dedicated their lives to others. And we think of like, ugh, you know, we, we stereotype and we actually make fun of. And, you know, there's the joke about the Jewish mother. 
Like how many Jewish mothers does it take to change a light bulb? None, it's okay. Who needs light? Like I'll, I'm, I'll be fine. That's right. And, and we say that that is, and we say that, right, to point out that that's not necessarily the healthiest way. Right, to deprive oneself for the sake of the kids, for the sake of the family. We don't, so the whole idea of surrender has a bad rap. Because surrender now in 2023, surrender is an ugly word. Surrender, surrender. Surrender was good. Like 100 years ago in Russia, they surrendered. What else were they going to do? You know, there's, you ever been to, some families have this thing. I, I mean, again, 2023, hopefully everyone has enough food on the table. But I remember back in the day, it used to be, if like, guests came over, you weren't exactly expecting, you didn't have enough food. FHB. You know what FHB is? Family hold back. It's like, all right, hold on. Family, kids, do not take until everyone else has. Right? Or, no, I'm saying, like, family hold back, FHB. So, surrender. Surrender. With a slight tinge of deprivation. It's good for the soul. It's good. The 20, that's old school, though. It seems old school. New school is, take care of yourself. Right? Number one. If you want to take care of others, you have to be healthy. And everyone quotes the, um, the airplanes. Right? You put on your oxygen mask before helping someone else. How can I put your oxygen mask if I can't breathe? So, of course, I have to take care of myself. And then I can, I can take... I'm not surrendering. I'm not like... You know, um, you know, letting go of myself, surrendering to. So surrender has, again, not in all circles, not in all contexts, but I think surrender, many people in, in various contexts feel a little bit uncomfortable when you hear the word surrender. And by the way, in Hebrew and in Kabbalah and in Hasidus, because today is the 20th day of Kislev, Rosh Hashanah, 19th and 20th day of Kislev is Rosh Hashanah of Hasidic philosophy. So it's important. It's certainly appropriate that we're studying uh, Kabbalah and Hasidus today. Anyway, so there's a word for it in, in Kabbalistic parlance. Or, yeah, and that is bitl. You heard of that word bitl? Bitul. Bitl. There's no word in English for it. Why? Because um, it's not an American thing. <laughs> As they say about like, huh? Bittul means to cancel, right, but it's, it's much more than that. Bittul is the art, well, kind of a today's, today's uh, a title, the art of surrender. The art of taking up less space. The art of letting go. The art of, it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself a little bit less. So along these lines, I want to share a few stories. Stories from the Talmud. Not, a, not an overtly Kabbalistic work, but nonetheless, the, the greatest Jewish works that exist, the Talmud. The Talmud tells a story. I'm, I'm going to tell you two stories. One of them I have as a handout, which I'll hand out soon. But the first one, I, I didn't put down on a sheet. It's a little bit too long, and I just wanted to share it with you. I like telling stories. <laughs> so, here it is. Huh? Good jokes. Yeah, I'll try to throw in something. I can't promise good. Jokes, maybe. I don't know, good. All right, so here we go. So the story goes, this goes back a little, slightly under 2,000 years. The year is 69 of the Common Era. And the Romans have surrounded Jerusalem. And they have laid siege to the Holy Land, to the Holy City of Jerusalem. And their aim is to destroy Jerusalem to drive out all Jewish inhabitants and raise the Holy Temple, the second Holy Temple, to the ground. That is the stated objective. 
How did it come to this? <laughs> you know, it's always good when you start a book or start a movie, you start at the dramatic scene and then you rewind. So look at that. I'm learning from Hollywood. So how did we get here? I'm glad you asked. How did we get here? Well, you know, Judea, Israel, was under Roman room for a while. And you know what the Romans, the Romans loved expansion and they loved power. By and large, they were pretty friendly to those lands under their rule. By and large, the Romans had a live and let live policy as long as part of the live and let live meant that you were, well, for lack of a better term, that you surrendered to, uh, to Rome. In other words, that you acknowledged that you were under the Roman Empire, that you paid tributes, taxes to Rome, as long as you knew the, 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 the hierarchy, the power hierarchy, they were fine with it. Great, great. And so Judea was under Roman rule. Fabulous. All right, all was well. Till it was, you know, at some point in time. So the way it worked is, the way the Roman governance worked is that obviously there was the, um, the Roman emperor, and then there were governors, you know, in the various... The Roman officials in every land making sure everything was kosher, but under that were the local administrators. Well, here's what happened. There was a dispute that... Shocking. A dispute that broke out between the, 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 the Jewish leader, whoever that was, the governor, whatever, whatever name it had, uh, died, and then there was, a, there was a vacuum of power and a dispute over who should take over. It's happened before. Once or twice, a va- uh, dispute of power, who should take over? Great. So what happens? What happens is they can't, they can't figure it out. So they call in Rome, and they say, hey, as a neutral third party, can you please ar- uh, um, arbitrate? Arbitrate, is it the right word? Arbitrate? Yeah, decide this situation. <laughs> so Rome steps in. Well, once Rome stepped in on that level, now they were on a, a very micro level, not just a macro level, they are now on a micro level. That was step one. Step two is a lot of the Roman governors, I know I'm using the same word governor, I just don't know the different names of the different levels. I'm just going to call them governors. One of the Roman governors, there were decades and decades of this, of this Roman rule, and for many, for many years, the Roman governor, they were very corrupt. That is an objective fact. They were corrupt. How did the corruption manifest? Well, number one, they would really lean into the Jews on taxes and take some for themselves. They'd go over and beyond what was you know, officially mandated. They would also seek to humiliate the Jews or to you know, kind of um, dismiss their practices, even though officially everything was kosher under Roman rule. Like I said before, the Romans weren't looking to make everyone Roman, right? It wasn't like togas or us was... Go- Whatever, right? It wasn't like going big on, on the Roman thing. It was more like, I mean, it's not like everyone had to eat only Caesar salad. I'm trying, Larry. This is not worth, thank you. I'm trying, not working. All right. A for effort, E for effort, whatever. Anyway, so, it, but at the same time, it, depending on who the actual governor was, they could enact kind of on the ground anything they wanted. So sometimes they would be less than sensitive to the Jewish needs and the Jewish way of life. And this got the Jews in Israel, in Judea, very wrinkled. I don't know if that's the right word, but I think it is. might be. It got them very, very upset. Many Jews were very upset. Because here you have this foreign rule, this, uh, this foreign entity. Look, the Jews had officially, you know, not officially, even 
on any level. They had a holy temple and they had you know, their sovereignty to some... Well, no, they didn't really have their sovereignty. They had their land. They were living on their land. They had their temple. But they didn't have this, this, this full sovereignty. And, that, and, and it manifested in, in negative ways. And that was unacceptable for many. And so this drove Jews to revolt. We actually spoke about this in a davening 101 months ago, one of the Shabbat morning classes that I do. And I mentioned how there were zealots. This, this we get not only from the Talmud, this we get from, from, the, from, the, from the books of history written by Josephus. Josephus, right, was a Jewish Roman historian. Well, he was a Jewish historian who after the Romans sacked the temple, he's like, he got a job by the Romans to write the history of the Jews. They paid him. So he's like, all right, I'll, I'll write about this, these stories. They wanted to document it. So Jews, these, these um, a very small group, but these, these Jewish zealots, they literally, to try to like wrestle away power from the Romans, they were starting to, to infiltrate various, for, um, not forts, um, strongholds, right, of the Romans. I don't know what the right, what the right military terminology is. And they would go and they would you know, kill the, you know, seek. Um, they were, well, they were surprising the Roman, you know, garrison, battalion, whatever it was. And they would take that strategic location. This got back to Rome, obviously. And again, the one thing that Rome, that was unacceptable to Rome, was any type of, Rome was, was a strong fist. There was no fooling around. We are historically, the Romans were brutal. But if you messed, if you messed with them, if you didn't mess with them, if everything was good, it was good. There were Jews, again, called the zealots. That, were, that felt that that was untenable, it was not, not acceptable, and they were pushing, and they were trying to gather everyone on board, and saying, we have to fight for this. The rabbis, by and large, were not part of this group of the zealots. The rabbis felt that we have our temple, we can still do our thing, we can still study Torah, none of this is banned, circumcision, the holidays, this is not like it was you know, at the times of Hanukkah, when basic Jewish practices were banned. This is not like Haman, you know, the story of Purim was trying to destroy the Jewish people physically and trying to annihilate them. This is relatively okay. We can work this out. And yes, some years are worse than others. You know, sometimes the governor or whoever it is of, of Rome, the procurator, I think was the official name of it, sometimes, you know, they were more corrupt or less corrupt. But by and large, we can still work with this system. But the zealots were the zealots. And so what happens? What happens is at some point it gets worse and worse and there's provocation from the Jewish side and then response from the Roman side. At some point this blows up into a full-on, a full-on war. And, you know, numbers-wise, again, obviously God, but numbers-wise and just strength-wise, there is no way that the Jews can take on the Roman Empire. It's just, it's not even, it's not even, in Hebrew, together, how are you translate together? It's not even... In the realm of possibilities, it's not even feasible. It's like not even close. So the Romans siege Jerusalem. Oh no, they sent before that. They sent waves of troops, and you know what? The zealots actually defended defended the city. And then Rome said, "All right, we're done. We're not playing around anymore." And they send the full the full deal, the full army, and they besiege the city. And at that point, you know, handwriting was on the wall. Well, the zealots, what they did was, oh, the Talmud says, this is from the Talmud. The Talmud says in Tractate, I think it's Gittin. Talmud says that there was enough food in the city to last for three years. 
like they could have, they could have withstood a siege, which means that no nothing in and out. They could have survived for three years. But what happens? The zealots burn down all the food supplies. They torch their own food. Why? Why? To force the Jews to fight. Because at this point, the Jews didn't feel, the, other, the zealots wanted to fight the whole time. But the vast majority of the populace, they're like, we're okay. We're fine. We can still negotiate. We can still. They were anti-negotiation. No negotiation. We have to fight to the death. One second. That also happened. That's after the temple was destroyed under Masada, or even sorry, even before that. Right, Masada was one of those strongholds of Rome that the zealots took. That's how they were on Masada. Exactly. Right. But this was in Jerusalem, in the holy city itself. They burned down the storehouses of food, and at this point, there was desperation. Obviously, there's no food. So something had to give. Well, again, the rabbis realized that the handwriting was on the wall. So the leader of the time, and he's one of the leading rabbis in the mission of the Talmud, his name was Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was like the leader of leaders. He was a great, great, great rabbi. And so he realized that there's only one option at this point, and that is that he needs to negotiate with Rome. Something. He's got to negotiate somehow with Rome. Some sort of agreement. Or else it's going to be over. But he can't get out. Can't get out of the city. Because not only is there a Roman siege around the city, the zealots are on the inside of the wall, of the walls of Jerusalem. They're on the inside, making sure no Jews defect to the outside. No one's going to be a coward and run to the enemy and wave a white flag. No one's surrendering. Surrender, right? No one's surrendering. Not happening. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's nephew was one of the leaders of the Zealots. So he consults with his nephew. Listen to this. Nephew was one of the big Zealots. What's the nephew? What's the name? Doesn't say. I don't believe, but we have to look it up. I don't recall a name. So he consults with his nephew and he says, his nephew says, there's only one way out. Because he loved his uncle. He said, you have to smuggle yourself out in a coffin. And so they announced, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, the great rabbi, had died. And they were crying. You know, only a very small few, a handful of his students knew this ruse. Everyone else, it was announced. You know, everyone's crying, mourning, tears. You don't bury in Jerusalem itself. You bury outside the city. So, they take his coffin. And they go to the gates. And they say, we need to get out. And the zealots there say, how do we know he's really dead? Said, you know how we're going to know? We're going to take our swords and spear the coffin. And the students that were holding his coffin said, is that what you want to be said? That you, that your great rabbi, you stuck with a sword, his dead body? They felt bad and they said, okay, fine. Well, after they got out of the city, he popped out of the coffin, <laughs> as one does when one is faking their own death. And what he does is he heads straight to the Roman general, Vespasian. And he goes straight to him and he says, let's talk. Let's negotiate. There's a whole interesting story. He calls him your majesty. Vespasian says, why are you calling me your majesty? I'm not, I'm not the emperor. And at that moment, a second later, uh, uh, um, 
I don't know what you would call it, a, a messenger came from Rome saying that the Roman emperor had died and he was appointed the emperor. He said, oh, this rabbi is a prophet. We're gonna, we're, um, what, do you, what do you want? I'm, I'm open to talking. When, he, when that happened, he's like, okay, now you have my attention. And now he's the emperor. Or the emperor-elect. That's what we're, I don't know how it worked. but right. so, um, so he says, he says, you can ask for whatever you want. And he says three things. Um, he, uh, very tellingly, he doesn't ask that the Romans back off and the temple be spared. The Talmud actually, there's a dispute whether we criticize him for that or not, but that's another story. Um, or I don't know if it's another story, but that's part of the story. What he does ask is for Yavne v'chachameha. He asks that the city of Yavne be spared and that that allowed to be rebuilt or built as a center of Torah study and the perpetuation of Judaism. It was the fact that Judaism exists today is because of the foresight of Rabbi Yochem and Zake, who was able to understand that Judaism could pivot from a temple-centric religion, right, to a Torah. It was always Torah-centric, right? But from really Jewish life totally centered around the Holy Temple in Jerusalem in one place where you would go and make a pilgrimage and etc., to kind of a, a more decentralized Torah-based system, you know, have Torah will travel almost type thing of where, you know, Judaism can continue on and, uh, and be perpetuated. And so that was one of the requests. Another one was that they should send in doctors and medicine to one of the rabbis who was dying inside, poor health, and I forget the third. But anyway, the point is that he really saved, I mean, to, to a very, to a certain extent, maybe even a very strong extent, he, we could say he saved Judaism. Because what would have happened had he not smuggled himself out? and not negotiated, and not received that, that allowance. I mean, what would Judaism have looked like if everyone, including all the sages, etc., had been murdered at that time when everyone was kind of centralized, right? What would, what would Judaism look like today? I don't know. I don't think anyone knows, but it would look probably vastly different than it looks today. So we can say with pretty, I can't, not, you can't say anything 100%, because you never know what scenario would play out if this didn't happen and something else you don't remember what, could, what else could have happened. But we can say, as things played out, Rabbi Yochum Zakeh played a very key and central role to the pivot. I call it the great pivot. The great pivot of Judaism, pivoting to the Judaism that we know today. Yeah. So was that when um, we stopped doing sacrifices and mm-hmm. Correct. Well, there was always prayer, yeah, but, but as a thing that everyone does with the formality and all that stuff, that really came to a fore. The truth is the Anshe Knesset Hagdola, the men of the Great Assembly, already canonized the liturgy at the beginning of the Second Temple era. But yeah, at this point, on a holiday, you're not going to come to the temple and bring the sacrifices, right? The Paschal Lamb ain't happening anymore, which means you're reading about it and you're putting a shank bone on your, uh, on your Seder plate. You, there's a pivot. There's a great pivot that happens and it requires a lot of a lot of thinking. And again, not, not that the rabbis invented stuff, but it, but it was a pivot. I mean, there's no other way around it. I mean, it was a major pivot. And it's been like that. And understand this. That pivot is not like, oh, and then it pivoted again. That was, that was the shift to the Judaism, again, that we have and we know of for the last 1,900 plus years. And I will tell you this. 
This Judaism that we have, again, I'm not trying to, to, to imply that it's a different Judaism, but it's a pivoted Judaism. This Judaism that we have today has been in effect longer than Temple Judaism. We had a temple for 830 years between the two. And this, it's already nine, uh, 1950, 60 years. Right? Rabbi Yochanan Zaki was a major figure. Now, this will lead to the second story that I want to share with you. And this is the hand that, that I'm, uh, I'm sending around right now. Okay, please take and pass. It's just a one sheet. I'm going to read this. This is, again, from the Talmud. Tractate Brachot, the first tractate of all the tractates. Let me pull this up also. I hope I have this. Should have this um, for our, for our online crew. Um, stay with me. I'm gonna pull this up. Hold on. Okay, here we go. I call this mysterious path. I, you know, I was struggling with the title. I don't know why. I'm usually usually come up with titles. Um, mysterious. I don't even like my titles, so just ignore it. Anyway, so here is the quote from the Talmud. Take a look. When Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, and by the way, Rabban is like high-level rabbi. <laughs> Rabban means like uh, someone who is not just a rabbi, but like chief. When Ra- huh? the, rabbi. the rabbi. Good. When Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai was sick. Oh, so one second. Uh, I can't just jump in. Let me explain. So, so it happened. Temple was destroyed. The Romans allowed Vespasian. Now the emperor of Rome, he's like, okay, we're cool. The rabbis, the sages can relocate, can start again in Yavne, city in Israel. And Okay, fine. And then he lives his life. And Torah and everything, and of course, destruction and mourning, right? But Torah, we have, we have light at the end of this tunnel. Okay. Now fast forward to the end of his life. He's on his deathbed. Here we go. What? Oh, to finish that story, they didn't back down. The Romans came and eventually destroyed, destroyed the temple. They became, they, the Romans sent the full force. Vespasian went back to Rome after their meeting because he was now appointed the emperor. Who came instead? Titus. Titus was, and these guys were, Rome was brutal. I mean, there's, there's a reason why all these shows, what are, what are the shows of Rome? Aren't there shows? Roman Empire? What about Game of Thrones? Is that Rome? I don't even know. No? All right, I won't see it. Um, but what else? What is like... Ro- Romans were... It was brutal. They didn't... Me- Rome didn't mess around. Yeah, exactly. the Colosseum. they would just They didn't mess around. Rome did it. They had no compunction, I think that's the right word, with killing. They had no issue. Again, they weren't bloodthirsty in the sense that they were looking to destroy nations. They actually liked it. By the way, Greek was also under the Roman Empire. They love Greek philosophy. It's great. Who doesn't? Greek salad. In addition to Caesar salad. Now we have our menu built out. We literally now have our, have our appetizers slowly uh, taking, taking form, right? What is it? What? Working through the menu. Working through the menu. And then Israeli salad. Done. Boom. We have now three choices. Sounds like a, a breakfast here. Right. The point is, that they came in, and at the end of the story is, boom, they, 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 they broke down the walls of Jerusalem, they came to the temple, that was their first stop, and they literally burned it to the ground. It took a whole night, or more than a night, and they burnt the temple to the ground. And they murdered many, many, many people that were trying to defend, and in the way, etc. 
It says the street the streets of Jerusalem were 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 flowing with blood. I don't even know if it's, I think at that point it might have been too late. I think at that point it was too late. That's why he didn't even, he, he didn't even ask Vespasian to walk this back. He knew, according to the commentaries, again, there's two ways to learn the Talmud. The Talmud kind of says that he, Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai, uh, is remembered in criticism for what he did. I mean, I don't know exactly, but like he should have asked for the whole thing. But many understand that Talmud is not saying that. It, it's, it's, there's more of understanding of why he didn't. Because he knew that that wasn't, if you would have asked for that, sometimes, you know, when you ask for something, you're not going to get it. So then you're just wasting and you're losing credibility and you're, you're losing your, your, the favor that you've curried or that you've built up. You're just losing your currency. And so he didn't ask for it. So he asked for that. So again, those that wanted were able to go when the Romans came in. But those that were like, no, we're defending it, fighting to death, well, they were killed. And that was thousands of people were murdered brutally. By the, I'm not trying to downplay the Romans. By the way, none of this, what I'm saying today, is trying to depict them in a positive light and that they're the good guys, God forbid. They weren't the good guys. They, it was corrupt. At the end of the day, they were trying to, you know, not trying to, they were ruling uh, um, Israel. You know, at the same time, you know, the Talmud does say that who, who, who is our worst enemy? Ourselves. Ourselves. It's the infighting. It's burning our own resources. It's like... We still haven't learned. I mean, how many times did the Rebbe say, the Talmud says, the Talmud says, that one in whose, in whose, whose, whatever, life, whose lifetime the temple is not rebuilt, it's like it was destroyed in their lifetime. What does that mean? Because if, if, if Mashiach doesn't come today, if it's, or in our lifetime, or the temple is not rebuilt, what that means is that the same conditions that led to its destruction are still around. And what are those conditions? The Talmud says the first temple was destroyed because of idolatry, idol worship, immorality, and murder, like the three cardinal sins of Judaism. The second temple was destroyed because of sinat chinam, because of infighting, fighting amongst our people. And... The first was healed because there was a second temple, right? We fixed our ways. We had a second temple. It took only 70 years. 2,000 years later, we still haven't fixed this problem. The problem of the inner conflict. All right, we got to work on that. Let's read the story that happens on his deathbed. This is an amazing story. And it's so perplexing. It's literally the focus of today. When Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaka was sick, again on his deathbed, his disciples went in to visit him. On seeing them, he began to weep. His disciples said to him, O lamp of Israel, right hand pillar, mighty hammer. Sound like wrestling names. Anyway, why are you crying? Why are you crying? He replied to them. Listen to, listen to his response. If I was being led into the presence of a human king who is here today and tomorrow in the grave. In other words, a mortal king whose anger against me could not possibly be eternal, who if he imprisoned me, the imprisonment would not be everlasting, who if he condemned me to death, the death would not be forever, and whom I can appease with words and bribe with money. In other words, if I were to be about to be led into a definitive court case, definitive uh, judgment by a human king, right? Even then I would weep. I'd be petrified. But now, when I'm being led, of course, after death, right? Being led into the presence of the king of kings, 
The Holy One, blessed be He, who lives and endures for all eternity. Who, if He is angry against me, His anger is eternal. Who, if He imprison me, the imprisonment will be everlasting. Who, if He condemn me to death, the death will be forever. And whom I cannot appease with words nor bribe with money, should I not be more worried? I mean, that's a pretty ironclad argument right there, right? If I would be petrified to walk in front of a human king, a mortal, frail, right, non-eternal mortal king, if, if that would existentially shake me to the core, then how could I not feel, how much more so should I feel, preparing to meet my maker upon my death? Before me, and listen to this, he continues. But of course, he gave a Jewish answer, this very long rhetorical question. Should I not be more worried? <laughs> so, so Jewish way of speaking, right? He said, then he makes a statement. Before me, which is also rhetorical. Before me lie two paths. One of God, the Garden of Eden, Gan Eden, and the other of Gehinnom, hell. And I do not know which I am about to be led to. Shall I not weep? That's what he says. Why did he not know where he was That's my question. That's the question. He was a robot. Good, good. That's my question. So what hope do I have if this guy <laughs> Good. That's what we're, uh, that's that's why literally why we're reading this for that question. Hold the question. Let's just finish this this uh, this excerpt. They said to him. So he tells this. He's crying. He's weeping. His students are saying, "Why are you crying?" He just answered them. I'm about to meet my maker, and I don't know where I'm going. When I get into the elevator, are they going to hit penthouse or basement? Where am I going? They said to him, "Our master." Bless us. They didn't press further with that crying, but they said, at least give us a blessing before you pass. He said to them, listen to this as a blessing slash wish. May it be God's will that the fear of heaven be upon you as great as the fear of flesh and blood. Because that was his answer to them. That he was, he was afraid to step before God in this final judgment. Like he was stepping in front of a king, a mortal king. So he said, you too, you too, Tells the students, my blessing to you is that your, your fear of God should be as great as the fear of human beings. His disciples exclaimed, only as great? Shouldn't it be more? Shouldn't we be more afraid of God than we are of human beings? He replied, halavai, if only it was as great. For you should know, when a man intends to commit a sin, he says, I hope no one will see me. And you know what he doesn't say? Why? He's not afraid of that. It's afraid that others should find out. A person is afraid and has to cover up their tracks that no one else should find out. What about God? Doesn't God know? I'm not worried about God. Oh, that means you're more afraid of a person than of God. So he tells the students, halavai. Of course it should be more. But halavai, we should be as afraid of God as we are. By the way, afraid doesn't mean, doesn't mean like fear. Like, oh, I'm so scared of God. That's not healthy. Fear means... This idea, right, awe, you said awe, awe or reverence, respect. Like, it, you wouldn't do certain behaviors in front of somebody else. So don't do it in front of God. Huh. Here's the catch, God's everywhere. <laughs> there you go, right? So that's, that's the idea, that's the idea. But I want to get back to the question that Shane asked, which is, one second. And that's why I started with the, with the first story. Rabban, Rabban Yochanan and Zakai. Not your average guy. He was a rabbi of all rabbis. He, I'm going to say this, he saved Judaism. 
at least on the ground. He saved God, of course, but he saved Judaism the way it played out. And you're going to tell me that he wasn't sure if he's going to heaven or hell? What does that mean for us? But beside for us, how could he not be certain? How could he not know? I want to share with you two answers. I'm sure many, but these two answers... Oh, wow, balloons just went up. I think there's some sort of hand feature that you do on Zoom or with the Mac or whatever that it releases balloons. I yeah, and or I did the I did the right I did the right um, hand motion. Yeah, I'm just letting you know that I just saw balloons go up in my face, and that was disconcerting for me. So I felt like everyone on, online also saw it, but I just want to share it with you guys, just to hear a window into my weird world right now. Okay, so here's the deal. Oh, I want to share with you two, two answers given by the Lubavitcher Rebbe who asked that very question. I think it's a question that sometimes, you know, people are afraid to ask because, like, what kind of answer could there even be? So it's almost like you're afraid to ask, ask the question because, like, what's the implication? Because the implication would be that we should be very afraid. <laughs> and who wants to hear that? So we're like, oh, that's a story. He was afraid. All right, moving on. But the Rebbe says, No. Why was he afraid? And what does that mean for us? Listen to that. I'm going to give you two answers that the Rebbe gave. Different? Oh, was he, but was he not self-aware? Right, we're going to get to that. So, so two answers that are different but complementary. Answer number one. You know, in life, each of us has our comfort zones. Let's just speak intellectually for a moment. Um, or in the realm of, uh, of intellect and intelligence. So some people are by nature very academic. They love learning. They love studying, right? They love, they love, they love information. They love studying. Some people are not as much the studious type or they, as they are the activist type. Some people love getting out there on the ground and doing something, changing something, whatever. But some people love studying. Here's one frame I mean, Yochanan and Zakkai wasn't sure if all of the effort that he put into Torah study, if all of the advances that he made in the realm of Torah was because of his dedication to Torah, mitzvot, and the godly way, or whether it's because by nature, that's who he was. He was a studious guy. In other words, let me, let me say this in other terms. He wasn't sure if at any point in his life he actually served God. Or if it was just, he went along with his nature. Had he not been, I, I, the Rebbe doesn't say this exactly, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Had he not been born at that time in that community, in that family, had he been born in a different time, in a different space, he might have been a professor somewhere. He might have been head of a university, a head of a, you know, in, in an academic field. He was in that context, so he's a rabbi, he's a scholar. When he goes to Vespasian, what does he ask? Torah, study. Did he ever serve God? You know, there's Abraham, Avram, Avinu, our forefather Avram, was faced with 10 tests. And the biggest test was the last one. Test, not like, beep. If this had been a test, this is a test of the emergency broadcast system. I don't know if they still do that. I remember back in the day. They still do that? All right, all right. Oh, interesting. Anyway, so, um, the, absolutely. Avram, Avinu, Abraham had 10 tests. Like, for example, when God says, pick up your whole life and go to a land that I will show you. I'm not going to tell you where. 
And, and Avram, Abraham says, sure. That's test number one. And then there are ten tests. The final test, the biggest of all was the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, where God says, Kachna, Esbincha, Esichidcha, Asherahavta, Esyitzchak, take Bincha, your son. He says, your son, your only son, the son that you love, Yitzchak. Very specific. Take him and bring him up as an offering on the mountain again that I will show you. And Avram does it. And then as soon as he's brought up, God just said, bring him up on the altar. He brought him up on the altar. The angel says, done, take him down. Never said to kill him. Never said to slaughter him. He said, bring him up. He brought him up. Oh, you thought I meant? No, there's no human sacrifice in Judaism. That was the, that was the lesson. Why are we so abhorrent? It's like, oh, people ask me all the time. It's like, how could Abraham, how could he have even wanted to? It's like, and why are you saying no? Why are you so, so revolted by it? Because of that lesson. No one knew that that was a problem until then. Everyone was doing human sacrifice. <laughs> I, your daughter. No, no, one second. Let me, let me finish that sentence. <laughs> if I stop it right there, that's going to sound Sam told me that she went to Mexico. I'm sure you know this. And she went to this temple. I don't know. Tsugazunt. Well, whatever. And that was the temple with the big stairs. And what would they do with those stairs? First, yeah, they would push people down for the gods. Not because they did anything wrong, but because the gods needed to be placated. If something was going wrong, if there were like some natural disasters, they would throw people off the temple. hey That was normal. And that was even after Abraham. The message didn't... Before WhatsApp. Like it didn't, <laughs> didn't hit. Did Where's that? Ishkoret is like um, an archaeological water park. And they do um, the, the priest's service there. And I swear the words sound like they're people. Interesting. And if you look at what they're doing, it looks like the temple sacrifices. So sometimes you wonder where they get it from. Tribes. Right. And is this the culmination? Did they repopulate? Where they repopulate inside these other right. places? Yeah, that's interesting. I'm the idea sure. here is that human sacrifice, the reason why we know that that's absolutely not okay, and now what God wants is from the very hands-on <clears throat> instruction of God to Abraham. Bring up your son as an offering. Oh, you brought him up? Take him down. We don't do that. Done. That's a lesson. But... But while Abraham had thought that that was at the point in time, right, on his way there, when he thought that that was the deal, this becomes a major test. Why? Let's break this down for a moment. Why is the Akedah, why is the binding of Isaac such a big deal? Here's why. Here's why. We all know this. Let me just put together the pieces of the puzzle very, very clearly, hopefully very clearly. Abraham. (coughs) Abraham was promised two things. By God, consistently. Read the story, go, go through them again, and Bracious, balloons flew again. I don't know what is happening here. Um, I must be doing something with my hands. If anybody knows, let me know. Message me. Um, Abraham, Avram Avinu, was promised two things by God consistently. Father of a great nation and a homeland. That's it. He's promised progeny, I think, right? Descendants and a land. Those are the two things. Again, and again, and again. The covenant with Abraham, the covenant, God says, be dedicated to me, and I will give you two things, kids, 
and a land. That's it. That's the whole shebang. God promises Israel, the Holy Land, to, to, Avram, to Abraham and his descendants. He promises children, many children. He has Yishmael. He has Isaac, Yitzchak from Sarah, and that's, uh, that's the deal. Imagine, after years, remember um, Isaac, Yitzchak was born to Avram when he was 99 years old, or 100, well, 100 years old. He was circumcised at 99, 100 years old. Sarah's 90, this kid is born, and, that's, and they know that's it. And they know that from this child is going to be the birth of this nation of whatever, whatever this is going to, whatever the promise looks like, it's going to be from Yitzchak. Because God had already communicated that Yishmael was not going to be the one to carry your legacy. It's going to be this Yitzchak. He's the one circumcised at eight days. Yishmael was sent away by Sarah. God says, listen to Sarah. He's on the outside. Yitzchak, Isaac is going to be on the inside and that's it. And now God says, take him and bring him, as, bring him up as an offering, which Avram understands to be the sacrifice. No, this is before. He was 37, he was not married. Still living, still living in his parents' home. <laughs> he was still, no, 37, not married. He gets married right after the story. Right after the story is the whole story of where they find the match. Where Avram, Avram is now single, his wife dies, and then he sends Eliezer to find Rebecca, the whole, by the well, the whole story. The whole, the whole soap opera, by the well. By the bar, a watering hole. So here's what happens. Avram knows that God's promise is fulfilled through Yitzchak. Yitzchak does not have children yet. So now Avram is, be, is being told to bring him up, up, up as an offering. Avram has been preaching for years about monotheism, a loving God. We don't have to placate warring gods. Angry. See, it's not, just, it's not just a numbers game. As the great historians and theologians explain, the difference between paganism and monotheism is not just the number of how many gods do you worship. It's that in the pagan belief system, all of these gods are fighting with each other for control. Like the, the, All the calamities on earth are product of the gods in heaven fighting over power and control and even human women. That's so, so weird. I mean, sorry, I'm being judgmental. It's bizarre. Right? But that's how, they, that's how they saw things. Whereas monotheism, Abraham, Avraham Avinu taught the world that there's one loving, beautiful God. Right? One loving God who does not want right, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, you know, pain and suffering, etc. And yet, he was about to take his own son, his only son that would be his heir, and sacrifice him. That made no sense. The reason why it's such a great, sac- such a great test because Avram, we know, was marked by the attribute of chesed. Chesed kindness. Think about how he operated his home slash tent. It was open on all sides. Anyone, the Arabs, I don't know if they were called Arabs, whatever, the, the Bedouins, the people in that area, he would invite them in. They weren't monotheistic. He didn't care. He fed them. And afterwards he said, let me tell you about God, where all this food comes from. He was, he, he, he personified the idea of chesed, of kindness. That was his attribute. And now, for the 10th test, God was calling upon him to activate, at least what he thought, to activate his attribute of gevura, to do something stern, to do some, something harsh, to do something painful. If Abraham could do this, or could be more precisely willing to do this, Abraham, Avram, would demonstrate that he wasn't just serving God from his comfort zone, but he was ready to serve God outside his comfort zone. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakeh, the way the Rebbe frames this, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakeh wasn't sure if if at ever in his life, even for one day, did he actually ever go out of his comfort zone and actually serve God. 
Did he do it for God or this whole time? He did things that he enjoyed, which, by the way, doesn't make it bad, but it might not make it reward worthy. It's like, what did you do for God? I did all the things that I like doing. What did you do for God? He wasn't sure if he ever went outside of his box. Now, the truth is, of course he did. But as to how he could not be sure, because he primarily stayed in his comfort zone. That's, give me one second, I just want to give you the second answer. That's one, that's one, one explanation. Second explanation, which I think is so powerful, is as follows. Rabbi Yochanan and Zaka, it's a little bit different. So take that first explanation, put it aside. Second, Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai was so dedicated to his avoda, to his work in life, to his mission in life, that he never stopped for one moment to assess and ask himself, how am I doing? He was always dedicated to the work and not self-auditing and asking, so how am I doing? Am I okay? Not, I don't mean, am I okay? Do I feel okay? Am I doing, am I hitting the mark? Am I not hitting the mark? At the end of his life, as his work, as his, as his focus on the work kind of um, withdraws, he suddenly, for the first time in, uh, in his life, becomes self-contemplative. He becomes self-assessing. And he says to himself, well, wait a second. Where am I? Who am I? What am I? Have I done what I've needed to do? Right? Have I met my calling or have I fallen short? He had never asked himself those, himself those questions. Why? Because he was always doing the work and not thinking about the work. There's two experiences. It's like you're at a wedding, right? wedding, and you're dancing. And you're so into the dancing, you're not self-aware. And then slowly you become self-aware and you realize that no one else is dancing. You're like, okay, well, I'm going to stop dancing also. But until then, you were, you were in the moment. We all know that experience of being in the, in the moment. In sports, they call it the flow or even other areas. You're in the flow and you're not, you're not aware, like you're shooting free throws and you're not thinking about that. Once you're in your own head and you're thinking about what you're doing, you're out. Shaquille O'Neal couldn't make a free throw. He was in his head. He was in his head. Oh, he couldn't make a basket? Of course he could. Of course he knew how to do that. But he was, he was too much in his head. Anytime we're in our heads too much. Look, that is why everyone says why there's so much, you know, mental health stuff today. Because at the end of the day, we have more time to be in our heads. Back in the day, not that long ago, who had the time to think about how we're doing? We were on a farm. We were trying to survive. I don't know why I'm going to the farm, but we were whatever we were doing. We had no time. There was no luxury of, well, how do I feel? How do I feel? I don't know. I'm working on survival. Maslow, isn't Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Right? Maslow says, without the lower stuff, you can't have the higher stuff. Now, obviously, this is a good thing, progress, but everything comes with unintended consequences. Everything. Show me any good, ain't tov below ra, ain't ra below tov. We live in a world post-sin of the eight sadat, tov ra, the sin of the, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, where evil and good are intertwined. So show me good, I'll show you bad. Unintended consequences, it's bad. Oh, this is great. We'll take care of, of our needs. We'll have what we need. And so we can work on the, on the higher stuff. Yeah, and when, with that extra time, we'll also drive ourselves crazy. It's also going to happen. It's also going to happen. Right, you take someone, you give them all the luxuries in the world, and guess what? They're gonna, they're, now they're going to move. Now they're going to have time to self-destruct. God forbid, obviously. But now there's extra time. So which is better? I don't know. 
That's not my job to, to view. I'm not saying to go back. I don't know which is better. It, everything has a challenge. Wait, we think we're going to reach a, without Mashiach. We think we're going to reach a state that's perfect without any negative. There's going to be a negative. So what's my point? My point is Rabbi Yochum and Zaka was in the flow. His whole life, he was in flow mode. And in flow mode, you're not thinking about yourself. You're not thinking about how am I doing. I don't mean emotionally or, or mentally. I mean, how am I doing spiritually? Am I, you know, reaching? Am I, am I checking off all the boxes on my spiritual checklist or am I not? Why? Because he was dedicated to the community. He was dedicated to his work. He was dedicated to God. And obviously the answer is yes, 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 yes. You did everything you needed to do. But he was pondering in this very final moment, where am I? Who am I? What am I? I never thought of these questions before. These are the two explanations the Rebbe gives. And both of them speak to the theme of surrender. The first explanation is, what is surrender? Surrender means letting go of your comfort zone. If you are chesed, chesed, chesed is your, sometimes, some, at some point in life, you will need to activate gvura. You will need to be able to say no. You will need to be able to create um, boundaries. You will need that in your life. And the question is, and even in spiritual service as well, whatever that looks like, the question is, do you have the ability to adopt a path that's not in your comfort zone, a path that's not intuitive to you for a higher purpose? That would mean surrender, where I'm relinquishing, letting go. I'm letting go of my comfort zone for a greater cause. That's like Pinchas. Remember the story of Pinchas? I'm going to wrap it up in two minutes. Remember Pinchas? Pinchas, right, he, there was this horrible, uh, this, this horrific, these acts of immorality happening, and a Jewish leader and a, a, a Moabite princess are together in a tent, and they've, they, they're, I don't know, I don't know, it was kind of pu- public, I don't know, maybe a live stream, I don't know what was going on, but like now it's becoming a thing, and so Pinchas says, what should we do? And no one knows, not even Moshe remembers, and he says, Moses, Moshe, you told us that in this situation, someone who's a zealot just takes action and ends it. And he says, okay. I forget the, the, the language in Aramaic. The one who read the letter should fulfill the letter. In other words, if you remember it, go for it. And he does it, and he, he does the old uh, shish. <laughs> he spears them, and he spares. He spears the Jewish people of the suffering of the plague that had broken out. That's the story. There's no other way to say it. That's the story. End of, end of the Torah portion of, of Balak. And what happens then, what happens next is everyone's saying, oh, Pinchas, you know why he did it? Because he's a zealot. He's a zealot. <laughs> he's a hothead. So when he sees something, he's like, great, I've been waiting for action. Now people are waiting for a rumble. It's like, oh, now I have an excuse to rumble. I'm a rumbler, but I haven't had an excuse. Now I can rumble. I've been looking to, like, to, to, take, to kill. Now I have a license to kill. Now I have a license, a religious license to kill. So the next Torah portion, named Pinchas, says... Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron God says, Pinchas, God gives his lineage. Pinchas, the son of Aaron, the son of ben Elazar, Pinchas, the son of Elazar, the son of Aaron And Rashi says, well, why, why is he traced? We know who Pinchas is. We literally know. We know the whole family tree. Because there were people that were saying that Pinchas did it because of his zealotry, because of his you know, inborn you know, blood, bloodlust. You know who his grandfather was? Aaron. You know, you know who Aaron was? Loved everybody. Pinchas went against his grain. That's why it was okay. Again, it's a, it's a complicated story. This is not the story I want to get entangled with right now, especially at this time. The point is that Pinchas did not do it 
right after we, I'm going to take right, right after we conclude. So Pinchas was not entering into a rumble because he wanted to, but because it was needed. And that's my example that has now come up of an example where somebody going outside their comfort zone. I'm sure we can find more peaceful examples and more and less, you know, blood, uh, you know, bloody examples of this. The point is that in our spiritual service, lesson number one about surrender is lesson number one is um, is not being so stuck in the way we do things, being flexible, flexible to do. To, to respond to a need in the way that is needed for the need. I think that's what, that's what I'm trying to say. Does that make sense? Yeah, to be flexible. That's message number one. Lesson number two, from the, from the, again, the Rebbe's explanation of Rabbi Yerucham and Zakkai. So let's, surrender number one is adopt another path. Be, be open to adopting another path. Lesson two is think less of ourselves. Sorry, think of ourselves a little less. Be able to be in the moment and be there, whether it's for God or for the other, and not make it about ourselves. Not make it about, oh, we live in a selfie world, right? We live in a selfie culture. And selfie means that it's always about me. Even when I'm with someone else, I don't take a picture of them. I take a picture of me first and then them. That's what a selfie is. Remember the one with Ellen? At the, remember Ellen at the Emmys? Or the Oscars, whatever it was that she was hosting. Ellen DeGeneres. I know she's canceled or not canceled, whatever it is. doesn't matter. Ellen, Ellen's, Ellen, Ellen's cool. So maybe, I don't know. I don't want to get, no? All right, whatever, I'm open. I'm open, I'm not stuck in my, in my way. So she took, right, that's lesson one. Lesson two, though, right, selfie. We live in a selfie world, right? We live in a selfie culture, and selfie means it's about me. Sometimes it's good to surrender and just be in the moment and just be there for the other person and not make it about ourselves. Just be there for God. Do a mitzvah, study Torah, and not be like, oh, look at me, I'm studying Torah. Look, like Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai, he lived his life, he did his thing, and then at the end, he, said, he, he asked himself, so what have I done? Did I hit the mark or not? That's a really powerful thing. And so these are the two messages I want to leave you with today. Um, lesson number one, message number one, not to get stuck in our own comfort zones in lesson number two, to not be so imposing of our identity on a need that we have or in a, in a moment of need. Let's not make it about us. Let's make it about our mission and what we're there to do. Um, and with that, we will work on ourselves, refine ourselves, and bring more light into this world because as we all know and as God knows, this world needs as much light as we can bring. Thank you for joining me this morning for Kabbalah Cafe. I enjoyed studying together. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Next week, same bad time, same bad channel, Hanukkah edition. And I'm hoping we have latkes, no promises. I'm hoping we have special Hanukkah fair. We'll see what we can put together. It's crazy, right? Festival of Lights, Thursday night. Thursday, it's going way too fast, right? It snuck up. By the way, one thing about Jewish time, notice this, and this is like the famous joke, but holidays are never on time. It's either too early or too late. No one ever said Hanukkah, perfect time this year. No one ever said that. It's always like... Yes, that's also true, right. So I want to wish everybody a Hanukkah Sameach on the theme of light. We should introduce light. And again, there's a lot of light. Hey, Mariana, good to see you. There's a lot of light that we need in this world. Let's let's be the the courageous light warriors that we can and bring that light. Uh, Shavuot Tov. And pre, 
Chanukah Sameach. Blessings. That's all. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you very much. I'm glad that everybody could join online. Good to see you guys. Yeah. Hey, Thank Larry. You. Pleasure. What, what's the name of, of the woman that you said? Oh, Shimona Tsukarnik. I'm going to put it in the chat right now. Give me a second. Thank you. Shimona Tsukarnik. She's fantastic. She's really good. Oh, she. Oh, interesting. I may want to put you guys in contact. She's, she's tremendous. Yeah. Okay, good. Some ideas are brewing. Okay, good. Awesome. <laughs> um, yes, Larry. Oh. And you never brought that up. Oh, that was in my head to bring up. What you say? Pathways. I don't think being for yourself and being for higher things. Correct. No. I also thought he needed his students to tell him he did a good job, like self-affirmation from the people he taught. From the feedback. Yeah, it's almost like somebody gave me an example recently in the Wednesday Kabbalah class of light, you don't notice the light until it hits something. So it's like if you're projecting light your whole life, but you don't get that feedback. Do you know that the Rebbe Rashab, the, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, went to Freud? Do you guys know this? Oh, really? This is where, you know the class gets interesting after the class? This is like the after, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Shalom Dober of Lubavitch, Schneerson, he went to Freud. Wow. Why? But he went because he was feeling a little down. He went to Freud. This is documented. This is on the hush hush. This is on like the quiet. Wow, look at that. Oh man, I guess I'm that guy to blow these things. No, he went to Freud. And he basically went to Freud and said, I'm feeling a little down. And Freud tells, this is the fifth, fifth Chabad Rebbe. He tells him that your students should visibly be excited about your teachings and the Yiddish would be kach, cook, but not literally cook, but like be excited about it and that will give you the feedback and the positive feedback to encourage you to, you to you know, keep on going and we'll lift. Oh, but first he told him, your mind understands more than your heart can contain and your heart feels more than your heart, than your mind can contain. It's kind of like, your heart and your head are too powerful for each other almost. There's an, that's what he said. And then he said the solution or a path forward would be, would be on a practical level to get that feedback, which is exa- Shane, well, exactly what you said, is that he was getting that feedback you know, from his students. He needed to hear from his students that he's good and they learned from him. Right. He was, it's kind of like when you want a compliment. You know? Right. Like, hey, how do I look? And, <laughs> you know what's, and you know what's amazing? What's amazing is, I've shared this before in other contexts. I don't know if I've done it here in this class. But there's so many times where, you know, somebody is there, um, does something that is very uh, um, transformative for us. But we don't necessarily complete that loop and let them know how instrumental they were. Like, I remember in Pittsburgh. So my 11th grade um, English teacher, Mr. Demensic. Maybe I mentioned this at some point. Like, Tom Demensic. I, I haven't, you know, I don't know where he is and, you know, whatever. But he was really instrumental in my, you know, my English growth and whatever, my writing and you know, teaching me skills and whatever. And I, I feel like I wouldn't be where I am today without, you know, without, without his teaching. Have I ever gone back, gone back to him and said, hey, you know, I've published, you know, a dozen books and written all that. Yeah, and, and, and I, and I want to give you, you know, I want to sh- say thank you. I haven't. Why? I don't know. I probably should. Um, especially now that I'm confessing this, find but like, I should find him on Facebook. Yeah. But like, um, 
imagine what that does, what that, what that could. I'm not trying to be here, but I'm saying what that could do to lift the spirits. Like, I didn't just teach for a few years at the yeshiva, and like, I don't know what happened to all these kids, but like, I'm getting the positive feedback right. of like, you made a difference. And how many people did we make a difference for that we never knew, that we don't even, to this day, we don't even know about. But if we knew, we would be more encouraged to make more difference in people's lives. It's that, like, for some reason, we take those gifts and we run with it forward, but we don't always... I say a lot of people don't tell you. Right. Most people. Most people. Because think about it ourselves. Like, I haven't told most people, you know, like, from my youth, like, you know... Your youth. Youth. <laughs> my youth. I brought a Oh, I thank you. I didn't need it. I have one. Okay. I yeah, it'll be, this, is, this is the right place for it. <laughs> All right. Good to see you guys. Shavuot Tov, Ray, Larry, Mariana, Lisa. Great to see you guys. Yeah. Yeah. It's not music exclusive. Yeah. Try to teach my friends. Yeah. Do you feel better yourself? You're saying both. Both are good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.